Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Racket is About Glory, a.k.a. The Deuce Bar. And on this week's episode, we will be discussing Emma Raducanu's remarkable victory over Leila Fernandez in the US Open final before exploring other matters of tennis greatness in the week that has been and the months that have been before. Oh, uh, no, actually... Hello, good evening, and welcome to the game. Is usually about glory, but wasn't this weekend. Uh, my name is Steph, and joining me are Gareth, Awesome, and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hi, Steph. Hello. Hi, Steph. Yes, this week we will look back at the visit, so to speak, to Selhurst Park on Saturday, where the top of the table at the time, Tottenham Hotspur, played Crystal Palace and came away with Diddley Squat. We will also briefly touch on how it was to play a team managed by Patrick Vieira for the first time in the process, wondering whether it made this London derby just a little bit spicier for us all. We will also take a moment to look back at the Spurs career of a player who has arguably become what Americans might refer to as the designated franchise player in Son Young-min, who rather ironically did not feature in the match against Palace, but has hit the ground running this season following his mega contract extension in the summer. But chaps, let's start with this week's icebreaker question, which I actually have to, I have to think about my answer for this. <laughs> what would you do if you were invisible for a day, Milo? Glorious Bastards, you know Brad Pitt's character in that, where he's carving swastikas into people's head. Well, I've decided I'm going to be the um, people booing, taking the knee equivalent of that. I think maybe just take fire extinguishers in the crowd and fire it at people who start booing the knee or something like that. So I'm going to take revenge on... Far-right idiots at football games. Uh, a, a noble start uh, for an invisible cloak. Gareth, follow that one. Oh, I'm not sure I can, really. Um, I've decided I'm going to go into my children's school and watching them behave and doing what they're asked to do, because they don't do it at home, but by all accounts, they do at school. And I want to know what the trick is. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> awesome. Very practical answer there, Gareth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to parenting. Yeah, <laughs> you've got me thinking. I was kind of interested in seeing what was going in the Institute of Virology in uh, in Wuhan. Um, There's obviously a bit happened in there over the last couple of years, so I was hoping to sneak in there with my invisible cloak and have a look around. Oh dear. I thought you were going to say you're going to find somewhere quiet and go to sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably is quiet in there now, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party have tidied up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 should I be embarrassed about my answer? No. Steph, <laughs> no. this is who you are. You are 54 years old and still a child who has never grown up. I would make sure I'd had an enormous amount of Indian and Mexican food the night before and spend the day going around public areas, farting loudly and seeing people's reactions, trying to figure out where the noise came from, let alone oh, the smell. You could have fun in lifts, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, that would be that would be what I do. I mean, it would be very amusing to see the reactions of the public. But I just feel so intellectually um, <laughs> dwarfed by all of your adult answers that <laughs> such. <laughs> You're just being honest. That's the that's the difference. That's, that's, that's the worst bit. I was just being honest. I can't even if I sit and think about it. I can't come up with a better use of invisibility <laughs> for a day. How sad is that? <laughs> Whereas we've spent the last two days trying to racking our brains, trying to think of something less embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, but even if I racked my brain, I wouldn't have come up with anything. That's the worst <laughs> bit. But anyway, okay, let's let's just start with the week that was, and uh, with the caveat that if you ever smell anything bad around you, it's probably me in an invisible cloak. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but let's start with the week that just was. Nuno has been named Premier League Manager of the Month for August. Congratulations, Gaffer. It's well-deserved. Um, he's well, yeah. 
He's done a fantastic job in a very short space of time. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, obviously doesn't quite figure into that, but uh, it is easy to forget that he was only appointed Spurs manager on July 1st. He's had a lot of work to do, and I think he's done it overall very well. Um, awesome. What are your thoughts on Nuno? Yeah, well? I mean, the, the, the curse is the curse is real, isn't it? And apparently he, he knew about the curse and refused to touch the manager of the month trophy, um, so that didn't work. Um yeah, look, I mean, he deserved it. Three wins out of three. We're still, you know, although the league doesn't mean anything at this stage, we're still three out of four, which is a good start. Um, yeah, rich, richly deserved. And I think the test of his managing ability will be how he bounces back from from the Palace game, really. Agreed. Agreed. Um, we also had Daniel Levy being elected to the executive board of the European Club Association, replacing Manchester United's Ed Woodward. And Manchester City CEO Ferran Soriano pulled out of the race when it became clear that Levy had the backing of most Premier League clubs. It's a very interesting little side story there, I'm sure, that uh, we will probably, if we dig around, we could probably find out a little more about. This is quite a turnaround from the fallout and acrimony from the failed European Super League just a few months ago. And Gareth, I wonder what your thoughts were on the fact that Daniel Levy is now going to be repping the Premier League. It's, it's really strange. I was really, really surprised. I've looked up the European Club Association comprised of 10 English clubs. The I'm going to put this in inverted commas. The big six are all ordinary members. Then additionally, Aston Villa, Everton, Leicester and Newcastle are associate members of that. So effectively, he's there to represent them. Now, my impression of Daniel Levy is that he's completely ruthless and he acts in a complete silo in Tottenham Hotspur's interests. So it, 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 I find it very strange that other clubs want him to be put forward as the representative for other clubs because if he's true to form, he will do what's right for Tottenham Hotspur and he'll screw the other nine and, and have no bones over doing that. So we'll see how it works. I mean, maybe he was just the best of a, of a of a bad bunch, really. If it was only the top six as ordinary members that could be put forward for it and, you know, United are out and they didn't fancy the bloke at City, then that only left someone from Chelsea, Liverpool or, or, or Arsenal to do it. Um, so let's say maybe, maybe the lesser of of, of other evils but I think it can only work to our advantage that he sits on that top table can't it so good stuff Christian Romero Giovanni Lo Celso and David Sanchez are as we speak hard at work at our new Croatian training outpost <laughs> no news yet whether Daniel snuck in to buy half the land surrounding that training ground and put in plans for a hotel <laughs> not having played the last fixture of the international break means that they started quarantining earlier and are due back just before the Chelsea match at the weekend who knows whether they'll play or not I mean it's just such a mess. I mean, I do think we would be doing ourselves a massive disservice if we didn't touch on what happened in that Brazil-Argentina game, which was quite honestly one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in a professional football game. Watching a Jobsworth stride onto the pitch, a grumpy little Jobsworth at that, with his paper sticking out of his pocket to basically try and deport players as the game has taken place. I mean, what a farce. Any thoughts, any further thoughts I mean, uh, on this whole matter? Yeah, I mean, a week on, because this was all unfolding as we were broadcasting this time last week, wasn't it? A week on, I've, I've heard lots of different people talking about it. I'm still not entirely sure I can I can tell you who primarily is at fault. It's just a, it's a complete 
it's a, it's a com- it's a complete farce of which several governing bodies and national associations and governments as well are all completely complicit in in creating it and I'm still none the wiser as to how this is going to be rectified for the next international right. window next month unfortunately and clearly for us it's had it's had huge ramifications in what happened this weekend it stinks of mismanagement I think rather than my first thought that was that maybe you know someone like bolsonaro's got involved because in the end they've they've had a game an important game that hasn't been able to be played so that doesn't even help the Brazilians you know they've all got hectic schedules uh World Cup qualifying for that for that part of the world is uh is a mammoth mammoth task and they've wasted a lot of people's time travel and energy so yeah I, I think incompetence rather than another another agenda there but we'll see yeah I mean Milo let me pin you on something here do is it is it a feasible plan for the future to have players quarantine in a neutral area like that train and then be expected to assimilate back into the side you know technically 48 hours before one of the massive games of the season can I give a politician's answer and uh, answer a different question uh well t- you will, so go ahead. <laughs> so, no, I, I don't think it is. I think what uh, annoys me most about this is that the players who, the clubs who refused to send their players to South America were meant to have their players um, banned from domestic competition for five days, and that was uh, overturned. So, uh, what's happened is that us and Villa have end up, ended up being penalised for following um, kind of FIFA directions and and the other clubs haven't. And I think the only um, outcome of that is that next time round, we won't release our players. I'm I'm pretty sure that's where we're going to be headed with this. Just to add, before we get into the second part of this uh, sort of the week that was international uh, tomfoolery, uh, Awesome did make, I thought, a very good point last week, which was that there was an official presentation of the Copa America trophy taking place during this last international break. In Argentina, but what what I now can't figure out is I don't believe the Celso or Romero were there. So at the end of the day, you have to assume they probably travelled with that in mind, being part of that celebration, and they didn't even get to do that, right? Am I wrong? No, I was going to say I I don't know. I mean, they weren't in the photo that we all saw of you know Messi looking ecstatic with with what was going on around him and the rest of the players and all the all the other trophies there suggest it was pre met you know it was a pre planned event. They flew back on Monday. That they flew back um, the day after the um, Brazil Madness. case, so uh, they weren't there for that. And but we also know that the the Argentinian F. FA had um, been blackmailing the players, basically telling them that if they didn't turn up for international duty, they wouldn't be in consideration for future um, internationals and yeah. they wouldn't be going to the World Cup. You know, I'm sure that um, being there for the celebration would have been nice for them, but I'm, but I'm sure the primary motive for it was like keeping their international careers going. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the week that was uh, Argentinian uh, slash South American players off on a break to be continued, uh, sadly, in a month's time, I don't see this conversation going away and I don't see the confusion and conundrums around it getting any less in this short amount of time. But speculation aside, elsewhere in the international break, we've been picking up injuries like crazy, just in case none of you noticed. Uh, Ryan Session on return from the England under-21 camp early after picking up a knock in training. Oliver Skip came off against Kosovo with the wonderfully termed stiff groin. Apparently loosened up in time for yesterday's game, but uh, maybe not to the uh, fullest of uh, fullest of uh, fitnesses, if you will. Stephen Bergwijn came off after an hour of the Netherlands 6-1 thrashing of Turkey and finished the match with heavy strapping and ice on his left foot. Sonny returned early from South Korea after feeling some discomfort in his right calf. Uh, thankfully, it appears that he will be fit for the game against Chelsea. And uh, finally, uh, Joe Roden was on the bench for Wales in their goalless draw against... Uh, Estonia on Wednesday night. <laughs> I see what you did there. 
uh, there's a name there that's been put in to try and trip me up. And I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go for it. Maxim Pasto- <laughs> Mas- Maxim Pascotzi's Pascot- Maxim Pascotzi's Maxim Pascotzi's Estonia on Wednesday night. The game is about glory. Nailing another name like we do. Anyway, whatever. Joe Rome was on the bench against them. The goalless draw that they had on Wednesday night. Good Lord, I bet that this game hasn't had as much coverage anywhere as it's getting right this second. And the good news is that Joe Roden obviously is in good shape, as we will discuss when we get on the pod. Anyone want to talk about the injuries or are they self-explanatory and we just move right on? I was just going to say about Pascotzi. I thought he had an excellent game against Wales and he played on the right, uh, say right centre-back of a, um, a, in a five-man defence. So um, we've seen previously for Estonia, he's played at left-back for them, although he's a centre-back by trade and then he was playing right-back for us in pre-season. You know, he, he's, a, he's a good player, but he also appears to be you know, quite adaptable. So it's it's a shame that he's not registered to play for us in Europe. He's um, because he's been with us for less than two years. He doesn't qualify as one of the younger players. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. On Thursday, it was announced that our stadium was one of fifty four winners of the twenty twenty one Royal Institute of British Architects Reba National Awards. The awards recognised the UK's best new buildings, and the arena was praised as quote a tour de force in stadium design is like the Town Hall of Tottenham. Uniquely, it is located on a high street, helping to embed it in the local community. That's a separate quote. I'm sort of, yes, I don't know, it's kind of a weird one. It's almost like Peter Cook and Dudley Morrow. Uniquely, it is located on a high street, helping to embed it in the local community. Anyway, uh, we know that it is great and fantastic and wonderful and we all love it. But it is nice to hear other people say it too. Isn't that right, Milo? Absolutely. It's a great stadium. <laughs> it's, um, and actually, I mean, it, it goes further than just the stadium, doesn't it? And I know I'd say it's going to sound a bit like um, some club press, press release now. But actually, a lot of the buildings around the around the ground um, have been you know, are being used and have been um, kind of restored or you know, the new buildings around there. It's It's noticeably different isn't it over the last since the stadium's opened or since the old white hot lane was knocked down the kind of the changes around there are, are marked and say probably most importantly the corner pins open again now yeah there you go i was about to so glad you snuck that in yeah beaverton have taken it over it looks a bit like a looks a bit like a happy monday's gig in the late 80s but uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll all get in there at some point before the year's out, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hope so. Just to add to that, Steph, so that RBA list of um, list of buildings gets uh, gets shortened on the 14th of October, I see, and uh, and the winner gets announced then. So I've just been looking at mm. our competitors in the London category, and um, I, I'm pretty confident we'll uh, we'll see another another round of praise for our stadium i mean the standard hotel in king's cross is one of the ones in the london category that, that looks decent there's a, an amazing mosque in uh, cambridge that's up for an award different category that's in the eastern category but um they are prestigious awards to be honest the riba um architecture yeah. awards i mean i, I hear yeah. of them here in, in australia so um yeah keep an eye on it in uh, in a month's time to see if we actually we, we might win a trophy yeah it's very interesting it's interesting you bring up the standard hotel because of course it is a quote unquote brutalist building um by definition and it is sort of, so it's sort of a you know the standard of taking it on and sort of adapted it it's interesting that the the awards obviously stretch to buildings that have been purposed and also ones that are brand new mm. so that's an interesting juxtapose mm. and we'll see who wins i'd like to think that the the, the mm. right part of a 
you know, North London will uh, will 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 prevail at that point. But uh, anyway, you know, you know, chaps, that when Awesome and I are discussing brutalist architecture versus brand new stadiums, <laughs> when we're discussing, you know, another trophy maybe coming our way, when we're discussing the Tour de Force at Town Halls, and Milo's talking about Beaverton, and I'm saying a happy Monday's vibe in the pub. I mean, it's just all we're just trying to avoid it, aren't we? But we can't. We did, we did show up at Selhurst Park for an egregiously early 12.30 in the afternoon kickoff, which I believe Gareth is going to be talking about. Uh, we did take the pitch against Crystal Palace. And from that point on, as if what had gone wrong before the game in terms of selections and injuries that we've been over uh, wasn't enough, we then got probably the, the most keystone cops of situations in terms of misfortune. I mean, you know, our usual question is, what do you think of the lineup, so on and so forth? I mean, we can go, you know, I think we've just got to go all in. Gareth, first of all, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts on a 12.30pm kickoff? Let's start there, especially after an international break. Yeah, I would. And I'm going to caveat this by saying this is this is purely mitigation for, for what I'm going to say a little bit later on, uh, which I, I think we're probably all in agreement about, about an absolute shit show of a performance. <laughs> um, but look, 12.30 Saturday games... <laughs> I can't see the benefit of them. They they really produce quality football matches, albeit there is probably fans of 19 other Premier League clubs who thoroughly enjoyed the one that took place yesterday. Um, but particularly a Saturday 12.30 game following an international break. So let's just let's just put this into perspective and look at it through the prism of, um, you know, of Nuno's eyes. He wouldn't have got Harry Kane back until Friday because he played Wednesday night by FIFA rulings. He's then got to be given a 24-hour period before he returns and trains for his club. So he wouldn't have gone into the training ground on on Thursday. Um, Sergio Reggion played Wednesday evening, so same thing with with him. Um, ben Davis, Joe Roden were both involved in the Wales game on Wednesday evening as well. Even Gallini, our backup goalkeeper, was on the bench for Italy. They played Wednesday evening as well. So when Nuno goes into training Friday morning, he's got no idea what condition his players are going to be in, let alone how he's going to pick his team. So from the moment the players left after the Watford game to go on international break, 15 Spurs players went on went on international break. And we know the the, the fast that's happened around La Celso and Romero and to a lesser extent Sanchez and, and Son as well um, by comparison Crystal Palace had seven players that went away um, two of which were playing in the African nation so Ayu and Schlup so their international break was actually over by the 3rd of September 15 of our players went back between them they were involved in 33 different international fixtures of which say 15 of them went out and Son Bergwijn came back injured. Lacelso, Romero, Sanchez were ineligible due to to quarantine. Um, this isn't a new thing that's happened, and it's not the last time it's going to happen as well. I mean, just just out of interest, the last international break back in March, um, the first game back was Chelsea against West Brom, and I think you can probably imagine that Chelsea would have been more affected by that scoreline that day. Chelsea two, West Brom five which is a bit odd and you wouldn't expect it to happen anywhere else. So 12.30 Saturday games, the best of times. 
don't certainly they certainly penalise teams with more international players. I know there's also an argument for teams that have played in Champions League games on Wednesday evenings, particularly away from home, shouldn't have to play on on Saturday lunchtime. This will come up again. I've just looked at the next international break. Um, the first game back on the Saturday lunchtime is Watford against Liverpool, and again you can bet that Liverpool will be negatively affected by that international break and players going out compared to Watford, and you can guarantee that Klopp will be speaking about that then. So let's just kind of have the the moral ground on this now and say look it's, it's, it's impacted us it's going to impact teams again for me the only reason why there are games at 12.30 on a Saturday anyway is because that is peak audiences in the Far East that for me is the only reason why there are games scheduled at that time at all it should be made the Premier League needs to put their foot down here they need to say one of the requirements when the broadcast schedules are made after an international break there are no Saturday 12.30 games BT need their slot they have it Saturday night at 8 o'clock for me it's a great time for a kickoff because it means I can watch the game live at 9.30 instead of 5.30 in the morning but um, I mean Palace were Palace were fit and ready and excellent to be honest for most of the 90 minutes so it's it's a great point I think Gareth when you dissect it it, it clearly did look like it disadvantaged a, a club with more international commitment To advance the discussion slightly into the selection that we ended up making yesterday and the shape and so on and so forth and we, we, we were having our, our pre-game chat here and you know I believe that what came up was at one point that you know Vieira had a, I think a, a full squad minus two or something like that training for the entire week and that we basically had 12 like established first team squad members in training on Friday from which Nuno's looking and thinking okay how can I get a side together is that is that what we assume happened and is that why we assume we ended up with this with the the starting 11 that we did have yeah I, th- I think so so looking at you know Palace by comparison apart from Christian Benteke they had their whole squad available apart from Eze and Ferguson who are long-term injuries who they would have known they wouldn't have been out with uh, so they would have had them back on Thursday so that's two good training sessions that they would have had say minus Benteke if you know if you look at look at our squad Emerson Royale's there, albeit he's just come in. He's, he's brand new to the country and the team. Tanganga's around, Dyer's around, um, Winks is around, Hoiberg is back Thursday, Skip's back Thursday, albeit we know he had it, he carried an injury with him. Winks, Delhi, Lucas were around, Kane wasn't around, um, Doherty's only back Thursday, Hill's only back Thursday, and then you're down into Dylan Markande, um, Toby Amoli, Dane Scarlett, and Tungi and Dumbele. That's it. So that that made up our matchday squad yesterday. So wow. Bergwijn reports back yeah. Thursday and he's unavailable. Um, Sun likewise, and we already, I guess, we already knew that Lacelso, Romero, and Sanchez weren't going to be about this weekend. Sun out, Bergwijn out, Romero, Lacelso, Sanchez out, Ryan Sessegnon out, and then within an hour of a game, we've also got Dyer and Jaffet out. All of those would have been in the matchday squad. Yeah, I mean, Emerson Royal has had to make his debut. I mean, I say have to make his debut is a sure a pleasure for him and it was a pleasure for us to see him and in the in in the grand scheme of things I actually thought he had a pretty solid game I mean it was Mm -hmm. definitely a huge challenge I think Will Zaha's a challenge for anyone both between the fact that he is an incredibly physical fast and skillful player and also he is a great a shithouse I mean he knows how to needle people and he looks for everything he can and he'll he'll you know he's he he goes for it in every sense of the word and uh you know he gave uh, Emerson a, a real game and Emerson did look up for the challenge and I thought stood up to it pretty well most of the time but that being said our back line is still it's different you know it's it's just it's, it's a different back line and Dyer getting hurt I thought was 
a massive moment. I mean, am I overstating the importance of that or not? Because before he went off, we looked very comfortable to me. He, he's the only senior player in that back line. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, it, of course it had a big impact. Yeah. He's so comfortable, I think, carrying the ball out. I'm not saying he's Johan Cruyff, but he's pretty good on the ball coming out from... Oh, I think he is. I know there's some funny looks going, but I've always thought he's pretty self-assured. I mean, it's not to say he doesn't make a mistake, but he's pretty self-assured, and he's actually able to occasionally find a really good pass through the lines to a Delhi or to a Harry Kane. And I, I just, there's an assuredness about him back there that we really missed when he went off. And that's to say nothing of Joe Roden, who, let's face it, we would all agree, had a really strong game. So, I, I mean, I think on Dyer, I think what we missed with Dyer was his organisation there. I think I thought Roden did well um, up, and, <laughs> up until Palace's second goal, which I think he was at fault for. So I wouldn't say he had a really good game, but I think he had a good game under really difficult circumstances in that he hasn't had a pre-season and he hasn't trained with the side. He went away with Wales, so as Gareth was saying, he would have only come back. Friday would be the only training session he had. He came on and played on uh, left centre-back and then once um, Jaffa got sent off, switched to right centre-back. He hasn't had a lot of time to prepare. He hasn't had any time you know, playing with the players he was playing with, really, and then was having to switch around. So, yeah, really, you know, I thought he did well in difficult circumstances. You're still actually, I can tell, and uh, to explain this to the listeners, what you can't see is that Milo's still completely befuddled by my description of Eric Dyer as being good on the ball coming out of defence. I can see it's troubling. No, 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 no. I, just, I, just, I just don't I don't think it's the qualities we were missing. I mean, I think... No, I mean, of course, Eric Dyer is not... I mean, he's not Franz Beckenbauer, for Christ's sake. I'm not saying that, but it's an element. I don't think, I don't think it was a key one in the game, but... I mean, it felt to me like we sat a little deeper without him on the pitch for safety. I mean, it felt like there was a, we did sit probably five yards deeper than we would have had he been on. I think the reason for that is because we didn't have anyone in the team who could pass. So you've got, um, I mean, you know, the issue for me with the game is that Nuno got the selection wrong. And I thought it was a mistake breaking up Delhi, Skip and Hoybier, who I think, you know, whilst not being particularly creative, um, have created a good understanding and have been tough to play against this season. And then to do that, to bring in Winks, who again is another conservative player, uh, we just had no way of getting the, the ball up the pitch. And that's inviting pressure. So, yeah, we did sit off them. But, I mean, I think we, I think the selection made that inevitable. Yeah, I mean, once Dyer went off, I felt we sat back a little bit. Anyway, let's not get sucked into the... Uh, we would all agree that Eric Dyer's departure was a, was a turn was the first turning point of the mm-hmm. game. I think that's fair to say. Do we know anything about the status of the injury? I mean, he looked in a hell of a lot of pain, didn't he? He, he left the ground on crutches. I'd imagine they'll probably either assess it today or, or tomorrow, won't they? He was sold short by Hugo a little bit. It was leg-on-leg contact. I mean, yes. it, hope, I was hoping it was the dead leg. Crutches could still be That's a dead often leg. That's a precaution, but... isn't it? They'll put them in a boot and leave, leave them in crutches mm. because they won't want to make it any worse. So, you know, you're right. Hopefully it's just bruising or something like that and it'll be okay. But you, you're also absolutely right that Hugo, uh, it was a really loose ball out and um, it was hospital ball, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Wow, almost literally. Yeah, yeah, almost literally indeed. But let's, you know, so that's the first. The fa- that's the first turning point, and I think we would agree that we somewhat managed to ride that one out for a, for a portion of the game. You know, was it a mistake? Do we think not? 
bringing on Hill or Ndombele at halftime or just right afterwards, maybe to spark that second half revival that Nuno had said he'd been looking for in terms of an attacking performance. I mean, we'd had a defensive performance, but we didn't have an attacking performance at all. So was it a mistake not bringing one of those two on just after halftime? What, what do you think, Orson? With hindsight, I, I agree. Um, even at the time, it was clear that there was a complete lack of composure about our passing and uh, in the first half. I mean, no shots... Nothing in the first half, really. Um, poor touch from most people. I mean, we don't know how raw Endombele is, but Winks would certainly have been the one, or, or potentially Skip, to be honest. He wasn't having a good game. Um, there was talk of him carrying a knock into it. Would have probably moved either Winks or Skip off and brought Endombele on um, in just with a view to kind of bridging the gap between midfield and the front three. Yeah, for me, we fell back into the phenomenon of last year when, when, of course, all our games were on telly and I wasn't watching any of them live. But Crystal Palace would have an attack. It would go out for a goal kick. The, the broadcasters would then show a replay of what happened. And by the time it cut back to the action, having us taken the goal kick, Palace had the ball and were were, were running down on the edge of our final third again. I mean, it was it was the most utterly clueless performance we've had with a ball that I can remember in you know in many years I just couldn't work out what the plan was with the ball was it to control possession because we certainly didn't do that was it to play on the counter-attack certainly didn't feel like it was it was to do that barring Hugo dropping the ball from his hands and, and, and kicking it long on a couple of occasions the, you know, the midfield three, I, I think we all probably looked at that midfield three when it was announced. I thought, ooh, where's the, you know, who's going to pass the ball there? That's that's just too samey for us. And it's exactly what, what planned. I, I think the plan was that they were going to try and create space for, for Reggie to move up higher into advanced positions on the left-hand side. And you saw that happen maybe within 20 seconds. I got the feeling that it was a fairly cagey game for 10 minutes. And, you know, as you, as you said, Dyer went off, which had, which had a huge effect on it. I felt from Palace's perspective, they probably gave us too much respect for 10 minutes. Then particularly their fullbacks realised, you know, there's nothing going on behind us here. We're going to go and play 15, 20 yards further up the pitch. Um, and then mm. we never managed to wrestle that momentum back from them. I think that's a good point about Reggie because obviously Dyer's on that side of the defence. So Dyer coming off, it's going to automatically mean that your fullback's going to drop back a bit, at least until Rosen's found his feet. I mean, I would have started with Hill. I would have done a straight swap. I would have tried to make as few changes as possible, purely because he's had so little time with the players. Uh, Jaffet going into central defence, I, I thought was full, forced on him. So I would have started the same defence as he did. Um, I would have started the same midfield that started the last three games, out uh, of the previous three games. And I would have brought Hill in for uh, for Sun up top. So just not change things too much. I think at half time, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of subs at halftime. I think quite often it's a bit performative and the, and the manager is trying to send send a signal to the fans as much as actually trying to change anything. Um, the one change that I wondered whether we could have done was um, get Kane dropping back into pocket. So Kane played very much as a, num- a number nine in this. He didn't really move a huge amount. And I wonder whether if he dropped into the space um, between midfield and defence and Delhi and uh, Mora had pushed up, we might have had a bit more joy. I think I probably would have tried that early in the second half and then if that hadn't worked then I would have made subs and I think yeah I mean um, you can make a case for Ndombele or Hill um, but I think either of them would have been uh, would have been a good player to bring you know would have been a good option to bring on 
It's interesting because the Mora to, to Reggie situation was, was ha- happening, you know, happened a few times at the beginning of the match. So there's no doubt, Gareth, I think you're absolutely right. There was a plan to get Reggie fully involved uh, in a very, very offensive way. And it seemed like Mora had the running from deep. But of course, uh, I, I, I agree with you, uh, Milo. If you switch if you switch him and Kane around in the second half, <laughs> you know, you may very well have ended up with uh, with uh, some more clear-cut creative chances. Uh, I mean, there's there's no doubt. The only thing I would say is, we can never be sure with Harry what condition he came back in. I mean, was he absolutely knackered? Would he have been able to do that? That Poland game was a scrap, wasn't it? So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised fight. if he if he was carrying a, a couple of scrapes after that. No, you're right. I mean, it's interesting because I was just about to actually mention the fact that he had a quiet game and you know, lack of service notwithstanding, you know, you'd expect a little more from him. But you have just uh, in real time, everyone uh, brought up a really good point against Poland. He did get thwacked. A few times, nastily as well. One time he went down. I thought he mm. wasn't getting back up. I think we all remember when that was. Yeah, they rolled, they rolled his ankle, didn't they? Which of course gets everyone a bit nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, although at this point it's probably the most elastic ankle in Premiership football, so it can probably take a little more uh, stretching than others. But yes, I agree. So, well, actually, we managed to take care of the Harry Kane question there as well. So, thank you for that. I suppose the next thing to move on to would be the second turning point of the game, uh, which was Jaffet's. Yeah, Chiellini-esque foul on Zaha, which resulted out largely out of frustration at Lucas Moura not having got a decision seconds earlier when, um, you know, some of us here feel that his ankle uh, was taken, was, was trodden on. There was frustration. There was a good deal of physicality that ensued between Tangang and Zaha. I personally feel, and I've watched this three or four times, that Zaha tried to swing an uppercut at him the second after it happened when they both faced up. And then, you know, Jaffet wrapped his arms around him and then, you know, Zaha's got his hands around his neck. I mean, uh, you know, do we think that Wolf Zaha's very lucky to stay on the pitch at that point? I I felt the referee got it right. I think if you watch that incident happen 100 times, 99 times, you end up cautioning both players involved in it. I, I, I think in saying that, I mean, Jaffet's reaction, as you said, was to put his arms around him. Perhaps a a, a a more clever player or more experienced player would have let Zaha do what he wanted to do, um, which may well have ended up with a with a with a very very clear hand on the throat or or higher up on the body, and that may have been um, and that may have been something that VAR picked up. Then, I mean, to some extent, you, you wouldn't see this happen, but to some extent, Tanganga was lucky not to have got a yellow for the foul in the first place, and then a yellow for adopting an aggressive manner in the in, in the aftermath of of that incident again 99 times out of 100 you're not going to see a referee at that level um, of all two yellow cards for that so again I I think the referee probably got it right I'm not John Moss's greatest fan as a referee but I I can't really complain about that one yeah I mean I I thought that if it was last season's um, far rules then uh, Zaha may have gone because he did have his hands around uh, Jaffet's throat and I think if the referee sees that again, or you know, or Vars uh, looking at it, there's a chance that uh, Zaha goes. The only thing I'd say about that instant is Tanganga did go in on Zaha over the top heavily. I'd say there were arms raised by Tanganga in that, so I can almost see why Zaha was so so annoyed. And I'm glad to see Tanganga stood up for himself against that aggression. What we're missing here in in terms of the fault for this is you know after the foul on Mora, the rest of the team all stopped and watched. They're all watching for the ball to get kicked out. So by the time it gets to, I mean, Jeffett's done a professional foul there. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, undoubtedly. 
But the ball never should have got there. Someone else should have dealt with it earlier on, and they were all just waiting for Palace to kick it out. And I will say, and this must be said, it is ludicrous to expect Crystal Palace to kick the ball out at mm-hmm. that particular moment. If there's a, a fault in the incident, which I believe there was, it's with the officiating team. You need to spot that foul. It was fairly clear to me. Uh, the linesman was not too far away from it, and I think the referee could have done better. That being said, to emphasise, you play to the whistle. I mean, that's what you tell kids, everything. So play to the whistle. Don't wait. It wasn't a head injury. So yes, there's absolutely no blame on Chris Palace whatsoever for not kicking the ball out. It would be absurd. And I would be, you know, I suppose in one side of my hippie self, I'd have been, you know, proud if Spurs had done that. But on the other side, it'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, it's a chance here. Take advantage. So yeah, indeed, I completely agree. Completely agree. There was a huge breakdown there. And again, this is where I think, you know, the dyers of this world. And I know, I know I come across as the one person chairman and fan club of Eric Dyer. But I do believe his experience in these matters and his presence on the pitch at these times is absolutely irreplaceable. And it proved to be. You know, he would have, it would have been Maldini-esque the way he just robbed the ball off uh, Zaha's feet and then Franz Beckenbauer his way <laughs> up the pitch before a Cruyff turn on there the edge go. of the box. And <laughs> there we go. Winning us a free kick, actually, which he then gets up <laughs> and leathers into the top right-hand yeah. corner as only uh, Eric the Maestro Dyer can. Uh, yes, can we just start singing I Love Eric Dyer at this moment? <laughs> just yeah. alienate another two-thirds of our listenership. <laughs> I think where you're absolutely right is he would have put his arm around Jaffet and said, just keep your head for the next few minutes. And then we come to that third moment. Awesome. Walk us through it. Well, the second yellow came so soon after the the, the first incident with Zaha. And I actually just had another look at it there whilst you're waffling on about Eric Dyer. But um, he... he he went in. He went in on the um, the second second challenge right in front of Moss, literally about two meters in front of him. It didn't look to me like another yellow, but when you slide in, a lot of the the contact was kind of after the after the tackle. It it just gives Moss Moss a, a reason to kind of reach in his pocket and you know not make a name for himself because he. Although he's not a great referee, he's an experienced referee, but it, it just gives him that option to send him off. And it didn't I, need to be that. I that who way. saw it coming, didn't he? And I who knew exactly. Mm. I mean, I who himself is not beyond the little bit of, shall we say, shithousery, uh, certainly took an extra couple of rolls. I mean, if I remember correctly, he rolled like two or three times after that. And you're like, hang on. <laughs> it's not that bad. As a referee, they often talk about temperature of the game, and that has an effect on how you deal with situations. So the temperature of the game was red hot at that point. So you'd had the you'd had the big you had the first yellow card in the incident that followed that one. Um, the crowd were up as well. So then do it within I think it was four and a half minutes afterwards in effectively the same in the same half of the pitch as well. He's just got he's just got no alternative other than to issue that second yellow card and to send him off. Well, I disagree. He did have an alternative he could have chosen to take the steam out of it but I do understand exactly what you're saying he's only human and the temperature was red hot and I agree with you awesome it was a really silly place to try and win a challenge like that and if we're completely honest the steam had been coming out of Jaffet's like you know ears and nose ever since the Zaha incident minutes before and that's where I'm looking to Hugo Lloris and Harry Kane in particular to repeatedly guide him through that period of time. It's not enough for me to go up to him right after the initial handbags with Zaha. You have to guide this guy through. I've forgotten which one of you said this, 
in the in in the chat. I think it was you, Milo. This was Tanganga's sixteenth appearance for us. We forget this in the Premiership. Premier League, yeah, that's right. We forget this. We forget this. We're, because he is such a, 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 a talent, we forget it. And, you know, I guess we're learning as much about him as he is about us right now because that's as hot ahead as I've seen. And he rode it against Man City, but not yesterday. And most of those games have been at fullback as well. Yes. Yeah, you know, he hasn't had that many games. So I think it's six a season for the, pre- the previous two seasons and then four so far this season. Yeah, and the, the majority of those have been at right back. So it's yeah. not its not even yeah. as if he's had yeah. a steady run. It's been very, very um, stop-starty for him. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was his, so it's the 16th Premier League appearance. It's his 28th appearance in, in total. But you think that's also the entirety of his senior appearances mm. as well. So where are some other young players may go out on loan and he may have had the opportunity to go and upset some partisan fans up in Carlisle or, you know, up in... Bolton or Oldham on a on a Tuesday night and learn from those experiences. His only other experiences of playing men's football or even development football have been in fairly sterile under twenty three mm. and youth team games. So this is this is a brand new experience for him. So again, there's there, there's some real mitigation for him. And look, you, you've got to call it as it is. It, it, it was stupid to have got the first mm. yellow card, in my opinion, and even more stupid to have got the second one within four and a half minutes for that. But hang on, I've got to have you up on this. Are you calling him stupid for that first? foul on Zaha. I th- just the way he did it. I mean, there's, the way that he went in mm. with his arm raised up, it was more excessive than it than it needed to be. There are ways that you can casually trip players, which is usually how you see that mm. sort of foul committed. But to go in with that, you know, with the arm raised high as it was, it, I just thought it was unnecessary force. I don't want to derail us any further than we're already getting derailed. But I will say once again what I said at the top, which is I firmly believe if Chiellini did that, it's being revered as classic shithousery. The difference being that Chiellini would have laughed about it and probably ended up getting a red card from the other fellow for the reaction. I think that's where we went wrong a little bit there. But I mean, potentially, if you play that situation properly, you're going to get a lot out of it. So I, I have no problem with what he did myself. Chiellini wouldn't have dived in and got himself another a second yellow five minutes later, would he? No. No, no, I'm talking about the first, but that's not, I'm talking about the first yellow. No, I'm not, again, I'm saying that within hindsight of, of knowing what happened. But yeah, I mean, if Kalini does that, for, was he with their Inter or, or Juventus, they probably defend the free kick. He doesn't commit the second foul and then they go up and score a goal from a set piece in the 92nd minute and then he's the hero. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking slightly as captain hindsight here. I, I appreciate that. No, I mean, and I think, look, I think there's a school of thought that will be absolutely sympathetic with your viewpoint, which is that it was excessive and there was no need to do it. I personally, uh, probably because it's my nature I, I somewhat enjoyed the nature of it number one because I think someone needs to check Will, Will Saha's box every so often because I think he pisses and moans about so much in the course of a game that it's incredibly frustrating and I like to see someone stand up once in a while to a player who'll do that and say hey not on my watch unfortunately you know he's then inexperienced versus lack of experienced head to come and guide him through that next 10 minutes cost us but it's an interesting discussion and one that I'm sure has been had in many pubs, <laughs> you know, over the weekend. Another point on this one is the, um, I mean, I think last season when there were no fans around, it could have even been a little bit different. I mean, that first yellow got mm. them so reared up that the second one comes in and the foul are probably screaming at Moss that that's a, that's a second yellow and obviously a red. It was, it was that particular corner seller. So if that had been the opposite corner, it probably wouldn't have been quite as hot. That's a fantastic point. Mm. 
and I think that that drops the mic on this particular uh, uh, discussion about uh, about Tanganga. Well, well observed. The crowd, the crowd were massive yesterday, and that's fair play to Crystal Palace. You always know when you go to Sellers Park and it's full, they're going to give you a game from the stands as well as on the pitch, and they did. They did show up. And I mean, what did we think of Palace? Do we think that you know they are really, really good? Do we think they're going to grow and grow, or do we think that we flattered them somewhat, given the amount of sheer amount of players we were missing that they ended up being three nil? I think we made them look much better than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, look, I think a lot of people have written them off this year and have written off Patrick Vieira as a, as a rookie manager, and that they're going to get relegated this year. Um, look, I mean, I think they'll be closer towards the bottom than they will towards the top. But I mean, Conor mm-hmm. Gallagher, what a signing that is for them in midfield. I mean, he yeah. was the star performer in midfield. Again, look, <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit of a perfect storm yesterday, wasn't it? Whenever we play Palace, to be be fair, it's, it's always a tight game. So how the game was at half or until the sending off, that is every Crystal Palace Spurs game for yeah. about the last seven or eight years. It's incredibly tight, pretty dull to watch. And invariably in the past, we've just about had enough to win or at least get a draw. I mean, say circumstances dictated that wasn't the case yesterday. And that, I think, is going to bring us to our uh, closing thoughts for this segment. Uh, <laughs> well, one positive and one negative in 30 seconds. Three, two, one, Milo. My positive is Jaffa at centre-back. Uh, errors aside, I thought he had a really good game up until, you know, he had an excellent first hour, <laughs> put it that way. Um, but, you know, he'll learn from this. And I think um, I think it, it showed that that's his best position. And um, we've got a good centre-back there as he goes through this experience. And my negative was um, Nuno's selection and cautiousness. I think he got it completely wrong yesterday. And I think a lot of it's on him. Gareth? Yeah, the negative is a continuation of that. It's the trend of low level of creativity within the team structurally. So for me, that's a concern. I mean, I'm I'm really struggling to find any positives other than that. I won't think back to how poor we were against Brighton last year as my benchmark for for terrible Spurs performances. That's got to be right up there. Probably Joe Roden getting 78 minutes under his belt for the season is about the only positive I can find from that. Awesome. It is a push to find a positive, but I thought Delhi didn't have a terrible game. I, I thought he was the best of a bad bunch, and it's good to, good to see him getting another another ninety minutes under his belt. The negative, yeah, I just think the lack of composure that we showed even before the major game turning incidents and the goals, it just wasn't working up in midfield or up front. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to have two positives and two negatives. I, there are two positives for me. And, uh, you know, the first positive is that it took until the moment our sixth central defender slash, you know, emergency centre-back came onto the pitch for us to concede a goal, um, which shows that there is some uh, solidity in that defensive shape at the very least. And I think that has to be a good thing in the long term. We do seem to, by and large, have sorted out the issues there, albeit we're undone by personnel or lack thereof. And the other positive is I cannot think that we will have a series of circumstances collide in this fashion again this season. I mean, if you, it started before the game and then during the game, as I said at the top of the show, it was Keystone Cops really from bad to worse. So the positive is we've got, we've got that rickety, rickety weirdo thing out of our systems and hopefully we move on. Uh, the two negatives, and I'm going to steal something that Milo was talking about earlier. I think it is actually, it was great to see Delhi play, as you say, awesome, as always is, but I did think it was a negative in where he was deployed. Mm-hmm. I wish he could have carried on building time and, and, and minutes in the position in which he's performed so well this season. So that, I thought, was was, was an off. But again, I, I agree with you, awesome. He, he played well. 
But, you know, he did. And he was probably one of the best of our players. But that's because he's a great player, um, I think. I just wish he'd had, we hadn't shuffled that midfield. And it is, uh, it is an issue that, you know, we really don't seem to be able to create, you know, unless we've got one or two players available that we didn't have yesterday, you know, specifically Sun, Lo Celso. Uh, we, we do need to be able to create more. I think it's why we're going to go for Triori again in January. And once again, uh, my about turn will be complete <laughs> on that front. But it does seem to me that we should get used to the fact that Nuno is not going to be signing a Christian Eriksen at any time soon. I think we need to prepare ourselves for the fact that our creativity is going to come from the speed and power of the front three being serviced quickly from the fullbacks. And I, I think, I mean, I don't know if that's a negative or an observation, but let's get used to it. We're not going to be signing a Pirlo or an Ericsson anytime soon. That's, that's my mm-hmm. overall read. Why don't we move on to a player that we missed so much yesterday and a player that I think any club would miss at any time. Uh, Son Young-Mim, born in Chuncheon in the Gangwon province, South Korea. Son relocated to Germany to join SV Hamburg at age 16, for which he made his debut in the German Bundesliga in 2010. In 2013, he moved to Bayer Leverkusen for a club record 10 million euros before signing for us for 22 million quid two years later, becoming the most expensive Asian player in history and conversely, the biggest bargain (laughs) we would probably argue in recent times. While at Spurs, while at our beloved Spurs, Sun became the top Asian goalscorer in both Premier League and Champions League history and surpassed Charbon Kun's record for most goals scored by a Korean player in European competition. And the best bit is, there's so much more to come. In 2019, he became the second Asian player in history to reach and start the UEFA Champions League final after fellow countryman Park Yi-sung. A full international since 2010, Sonny has represented South Korea at the 2014 and 2018 FIFA World Cups and his country's highest score in the World Cup joining with Park, with Park Ji-sung and An Yung-won with three goals. Sonny has represented South Korea. Look, Sonny's represented South Korea in so many important tournaments, none more so than the 2018 Asian Games. We'll get into why that gold medal was so important. Mm. Let's just have a little appreciation of Sun Young-min. Uh, if you can... Give us a minute on your thoughts on this player and your holistic overview of this player before we get into specifics. And I'm going to start with you, Milo. Well, he's superb, isn't he? I mean, he's uh, two-footed. Although you know, principal plays on the left, he can play any any of the positions across the front. Um, you know, he's direct, strong defensively, a fantastic dribbler. But you know, unlike some of the other dribblers and uh, ball carriers within the side, he can spot a pass. He can he can see. He know he's aware of what's going on around him. I think the other key thing with him is that he's an intelligent player. You know, he reads the game well, but he also follows instructions. He's, you know, he'll do what the manager's asking him to do, and I think that's why he's become you know, kind of relied on so much by um, well, all of the you know, the managers he's played under at Spurs. And I, I was also going to touch briefly on his goal scoring. You know, Kane. Obviously, he's, um, you know, scores a lot. But so Premier League last season, Kane got 23, uh, 23 goals. Uh, non-penalty goals was 19. So you know, he got four, scored four penalties. Sun got 16 non-penalty goals last season. There's not a huge amount of difference, you know, not a huge amount, a huge gap between them in terms of the number of goals they score. Yeah, he's an absolute key player. He creates loads. He scores a lot. He's a real handful. I think undoubtedly the second most important player in that side. When we signed him, he was signed as an upgrade on Nasser Chadley, who in you know, Poch's first season had, had been a really good performer, actually. So 
when he came in, I shouldn't think many of us had, had heard of him. And um, what a transfer he was! You know, for twenty two, twenty three million pound, it will go down. I think I've said this before, but it will go down. Surely, one of the greatest signings um, in in the club's history in terms of the amount of money that we spent on him. So it's, it's a bit of a gamble to us in twenty fifteen for Spurs, anyways, a non Champions League club to spend that amount of money on a player. Um, it was absolutely huge. It'll only echo everything that Milo said about his attributes on the pitch, but what an infectious personality he's got, what a what a character is he he appears to be incredibly likable. I think other players really taken to him and developed great friendships with him in that first year. There was all those um all those, all those clips of his friendship with Kevin mm-hmm. Wimmer, which he worried whether um how that was going to impact him when, when when Wimmer left. But on the pitch as well, he's developed some really, really good link-ups with, well, notably Delhi and with Kane as well. But I think over over time, what's been so noticeable has been his development from being a fairly streaky and inconsistent player to start with. So he'd be pr- pretty hot for two or three games, then you wouldn't see him for, for very much. And that would happen in games as well. But he became really talismanic. And in that season, when we got to the Champions League final, there was that period when Kane was out in January and he stepped up. Was it about three, three games mm-hmm. in a row where he came and scored, having just come back from one of the um, international duty with Korea? And it was probably the those points and goals that he earned us that got us into the Champions League the following season that year because we, we only just scraped through. So, so he, the, the fact that he's become so talismanic and he has become so important that, you know, we always talk about Pep calling Spurs the Harry Kane team and probably at the time you could have done, but now, you know, even Pep would have to describe him as the Kane and Son team. That's that's what we became mm. last year and he's put himself on that, he's put himself on that pedestal with the very best players that we've got at the moment and we're, we're delighted to have him and delighted to have him for, for at least another two or three years. Yeah, excellent player, amazing signing. I mean, I remember when he first signed for us, he did that, um, Korean meal for the the squad to kind of you know integrate I guess and um you know he came across as a as a different character and he's you know he's got one of the most infectious smiles in football but incredible player that the the pace of his uh his step overs and it, the fact that most defenders must know what he's going to do when he when he fronts them up but you you almost can't stop it it gets me thinking when we do these little segments, you know, kind of a longer term view on him. And I, I think it's probably fair to say in the last decade, he could be our best signing. I think the only one that's really up there for contention with that is Ericsson. Larice has obviously, you know, been uh, been excellent. But in terms of excitement, X factor, I, I, I think Sun is a, is a good shout up there with Ericsson as our, our best signing probably since Modric. And it could have been so much worse. I mean, back when we bought him, it was Berahino was the, uh, was the other option that we were looking at. Um, we put in two offers to West Brom for him and thank God they weren't accepted. So it could have been worse than that as well. Cause I know that Arsenal had looked at Sun for a couple of uh, seasons and, um, and didn't, didn't bite the bullet on the, on the deal. So it could have been a lot worse. Crikey. You know, early in his career, there was a moment where people thought he might want to move on and he was a little frustrated. But I think what people forget is in his first season, he actually suffered terribly uh, from from a couple of very, very annoying injuries for anyone who's ever had them. He uh, he did have a calf issue for a while, but the big one was this plantar uh, fasciitis, which of course, as any of us, and I'm sure I've butchered that by the way, but as any of us know, it's the band of tissue that stretches from the heel to the middle bones of the foot, which resembles a ligament. Well, I mean, it is a ligament, I think. But 
regardless, what it is, is really bloody painful if it, and, and it can really uh, stop you from hitting any stride. And I, I mean, as I understand it, he was out for, uh, he was out for uh, some time, I think six weeks between September and November, he was out right at the beginning of his Spurs career there. And I think it really hindered his first season, which was still fairly successful. Um, but at that point, uh, you know, did we did we think there was a chance that this was not the player that you know we should have signed? Did we possibly think, well, well, maybe we should have got that Berahino geezer? <laughs> I mean, did we ever doubt him? Was this a moment of doubt, or did you all think, no? Well, once he gets us a run and gets through his injuries, he'll be fine. So his, his first season was, you know, you're right, it was disrupted. I mean, so he made 28 appearances in his first season, scoring four goals. Um, so I mean, that's his worst return during his time with us. Yeah, I mean, evidently, he, you know, he was homesick or, you know, wanted to go back to Germany. And it was Potts who convinced him to give it another another year. And I, I think back to that time, and I remember quite a few Spurs fans online thinking that, we, you know, maybe we should sell him if, if the right offer came in. And so I think he's, you know, he's a, he's a good um, good lesson in you know, giving players time and not, you know, sometimes it just takes players a, a while to bed in. He's a really key personality within the squad now, and he's taken, he's stepped up to that and taken on that kind of leadership role uh, in Kane's absence. You know, you're absolutely right when you talk about the Champions League season where he feel, you know, where he stepped up. Then, uh, you know, we're used to seeing it now, and and if anything, I think you know, arguably, he's better in Kane's absence sometimes, and he takes on that extra responsibility and and, and leads the side. So I think it's been amazing watching him grow over these last six years. Yeah, the turning point, of course. I mean, you would say that he saw off um, the challenge, so to speak, of, of Nessa Chadley. Obviously, Chadley was sold. Uh, he definitely stepped into another gear of confidence, mm. it felt, after that, knowing his success of the challenge. I think we would all agree that, you know, Mauricio Pochettino showed the importance of brilliant man management at that point. Uh, as you quite rightly say, Milo, uh, he did need an arm around the shoulder. You know, obviously, he's, you know, we, we could go into the achievements and so on and so forth. Let's get into a couple of the personal things. This is a film I have not seen, and I know I'm probably in a minority, but I did not see Sensational, but I know some of you did. Um, so, you know, what did Sensational tell us about his upbringing? I mean, by all accounts, it was, um, shall we say, less than uh, less than loose. I saw it. It was it was a really fascinating documentary, as you'd imagine, very well put together. Um, really focused on the relationship that he has with his father, who it's not Peter around the bush has worked him incredibly hard since being a very young child to make sure that he could become the player that he that he has done. Um, there's <laughs> there's probably some lessons in parenting there that you might take as good lessons, and some that you might take as take as bad lessons. Look, it's it's obviously worked out really well for him um and it appears that you know holistically he's a very grounded person as well and that he's very happy and that comes across in the way that he conducts him mm. himself and the way that he lives his life um can i just ask a question because you saw the film i'm just it maybe he's a gentleman is there a Mrs. Son? No, there is, there, there is no mention of, of Sonny having a girlfriend. And him. He, he's spoken about this before. He said he's going to leave it until he retires from football. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the documentary, his dad comes across as um, really, really tough. So, I mean, one of the training routines that really sticks in my mind was him making him walk around a football pitch, uh, ball juggling. And if he dropped the ball, he had to start again. 
um, and that was a routine that he got him to do every day. Um, he trained him very hard with his wrong foot, didn't he? So, that, you know, that's why he's two-footed, because he made him try very hard with that. Was his father a player? Yeah, his, his father was a player. His brother was a player as well. So they've got an academy in South Korea, which uh, quite a lot of the footage is filmed at. So the, the, the film was originally made for the Korean TV, and then Amazon have bought it up and put it on Prime. And I think it's his brother and his dad. It's his brother who's running the academy. His dad's over here with him, isn't he? He lives in the. They live together. Yeah, they live. They live in the house. Again, there's shots in the film where after he's finished Spurs training, his dad's taking him out training afterwards. It's 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 an unusual relationship. It's an unusual background, but I think the kind of the completeness of the player. I think you could undoubtedly put down to you know to his dad and 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 how he's trained him. Although, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like some of those tennis relationships, isn't it? Where you get um, like the Williams, the Williams sisters' dad or something. Yeah, Venus yeah. Williams. Yeah, it's sounding mm. a little, uh, a little. Bi- I, I don't know if any of you ever read Andre Agassi's book, but uh, I, 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 frankly, if, if there's one uh, athletic autobiography to read, that is the one. It's superbly written. The ghostwriter who worked on that, top marks. The first chapter, first page, or first chapter is just crushing mm. it's crushing and then you realize where it came from and it's even more crushing but uh well mm. i guess i guess we can't really draw too many comparisons because we, i mean I, I certainly can't i haven't even seen the film but this is really this is really very interesting i mean it, it opens up a whole angle of his character i, th- I think one thing i say one of the other things that struck me in it there's a scene where um he's with a k-pop star and i, I don't know who it is so uh, forgive me i'm not being up on my k-pop um, but he's talking about his life in London and in South Korea, he gets mobbed. So he, you know, he, he, he's the equivalent of a, you know, K-pop star over there in terms of his profile and, you know, how well known he is. I mean, you've got to bear in mind on Korean TV, when they're showing our games, they have a, a symbol in the corner next to the score to say whether he's on the pitch or not. Hopefully, hopefully people will notice in his performance, but I know what you mean. No, 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 <laughs> they do. They, 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 next to the scores, there's a, you know, an S or a kind of equivalent saying whether he's on the pitch or not. So, but he's talking to this K-pop star and he's saying that in London he can walk around and he's not bothered. He's not mobbed. He doesn't have, you know, doesn't have any issues. And then the, this K-pop star can't believe it, you know, kind of compared to what their life is like back home. So I think from that point of view, he probably quite enjoys it. And there's a, there's another, there's a quite a notable scene in it where he's out in Hampstead and he bumps into, it's Dyer and Vertonghen, isn't it? It's it was noticeable that you know whilst they are they are talking to fans, I think they give some autographs in that section. They're not mobbed. They're not given a hard time, and I think he he likes that. Interesting. Well, obviously, very you know he's obviously got tremendous self discipline and tremendous. Uh, I mean, the comment alone that you picked up on about you know potential Mrs. Son. I mean, that's dedication. Although, if you're an old man, <laughs> if your old man's living with you, I'm sure it's a little easier to maintain that that focus. That being said, it would be remiss of us not to touch on uh, one thing that opposition fans say about him, which is that he does like the feel of the turf a little too quickly. Uh, do we think there's any truth in that? Do we think Sonny goes to ground easily or not? Do we think that he's become, uh, you know, aware of, of, of the touch and, and looks for things? Has, is that part of his uh, quote-unquote growth as a professional, is to be a little more quote-unquote of a professional in that sense or not? Or do we think that's just sour grapes? I don't think any more than any other Premier League player. Um, I'd put, you know, probably Delhi ahead of him in that, or Kane in that respect. Um, and that's trying to be as, you know, mm. 
unbiased as possible. I don't, I don't look at Son as being one of our worst defenders in terms of trying to, you know, trick trick refs for penalties and things. No, I, I agree, yeah. Uh, so, all right, well, we've fulfilled our obligation of balance there. Now we can go back to absolutely praising the genius and, and, and uh, uh, you know, all attributes of Son Young-Min. Uh, one of the uh, most incredible things that I think has ever happened to him in his career, um, and which I really don't think enough has been made of, uh, was the career-changing... Uh, Gold Cup win in 2018. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't think any of us can fully relate to what that game meant. Yes, South Korea beat rivals Japan 2-1. But, you know, the relevance of that game is that basically he got to see four weeks of basic national service as opposed to having to put his career on hold for three years. Because, of course, the idea was that if they were to win the gold medal, he, you know, he would be able to take that deal. Immense pressure. Uh, does anyone want to comment on what that that game must have been like? I mean, I just can't. It's like you you don't write films like that. They don't write movies like that. Yeah, John, like you said, I, I can't fathom the magnitude of the game just because it, it it feels a little bit abstract to us, doesn't it? But clearly, it meant it meant a hell of a lot to him, and it meant a hell of a lot to to South Korean football as well. Um, and so it, it avoided him doing that national service, and it was a really good example of the of of the club working very well with the national federation, yes. and clearly Sonny being a big part of that conversation as well. And there, there must have been a will on his part for it. But he's um, yeah, so he's he's really the country's football talisman he's the captain isn't he of the national team as well which adds adds a little bit more to the story yeah I mean I'm going to throw this out there to to all of you it seems to me that he has grown so much as a player since that game and I'm going to speculate that the pressure being relieved has had the impact on his career that you would I mean you would have hoped that it would have had and I feel he's grown so much since that moment do you think that's a fair comment yeah I think it is I think it must do. Like you said, a huge, hugely high pressure game. I think also it's probably had a big impact um, on his bond with the club and his, his, his desire to stay here longer because we've supported him through that. I also think we were very cute sending him for his four weeks national service during lockdown when uh, there was no football on last year. So we got that out of the way at a point where it had no impact whatsoever. It's a fantastic point. He excelled at the national service as well, apparently, didn't he? He won an award for uh, for shooting, ironically. Did he? Did he really? I didn't know that apparently. at all. No, it's great. <laughs> In one of the shooting practices, he was the he was the top or one of the top performers. No, I think it's a great point, and it did lead to uh, Sonny getting that massive uh, contract. That I think. Um, I think we were all relieved to see him sign in the end. I think the game is about glory. Had uh, had tip offs from the, you know, from our sources at the club. Sorry, Daniel, to out you, um, that this was always going to be the case. Um, but you know, nonetheless, it was nice to see him eventually sign. Do we think it was a statement by the club in the wake of all the Kane speculation at that time that look, you know, regardless of what happens with Harry, we need to establish uh, who our, you know, who our ambassador is, so to speak, and we have, you know decided that this thoroughly talented, congenial and diplomatic and international uh, footballer is the perfect face. Do we think that that's what's happened here? That he is, quote unquote, the franchise player of Tottenham Hotspur at this point? Um, in terms of the deal itself, it was on the table for a lot longer. And I think the delay in announcing it is because we couldn't do that until the um, the Bank of England loan had been repaid. So I don't think it was directly related to, to the Kane situation. But uh, they must have thought it was a smart decision when all that erupted towards the end of last season. 
And in terms of, I mean, he's perfect, isn't he? In terms, you know, a lot of the the value in a player as well as what they can do on the pitch is in terms of, um, you know, kind of market marketability and 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 and, and uh, you know everything else around it. And and he's great for all of that. You know, he speaks well. He's uh, you know great ambassador ambassador for the club. Um, you know, he brings a lot of fans to the ground. Um, he really helps our profile. You know, you're not going to see him falling out of a nightclub pissed at three o'clock in the morning are you he's you know, everything you could want from a from a footballer he, he's got that he's perfect for us if there is a negative about Sonny what would it be well it's, it's, it's only his temperament that occasionally has has cost him and it's cost us so he's been shown three red cards since he's been a Spurs player and they were in three incidents in a fairly short period of time so he got sent off at Bournemouth in May 2019 for reacting angrily to Jefferson Lerma who is a master of shithousery um, but he's still he's still he's still adopted an aggressive manner and was sent off then and that cost us he was sent off against Chelsea for um, kicking out at Rudiger after he felt he'd been fouled and then in between that he had, he was involved mm. in that terrible incident up at Goodison where he, you know, it was later rescinded. It was his challenge on Andre Gomez or his challenge that led to Andre Gomez getting badly injured. But you could see that was a retaliation. Mm. He felt he'd been fouled and he chased down a player um, who ended up getting very badly hurt. And I think in the long term, I just want to see that he's managed to coach that out of his game, that he can keep his keep his head. And it's, it's ironic that we discuss it on the same pod that we've spoken about Tanganga's incident yesterday where he couldn't quite get his get, get his mind together in the right place to um, to, to calm himself down. But you know, other, otherwise, it's a, he's, he's had an impeccable period of time with the club. I'm struggling to think of a negative of Son. To be honest, that's how good he is. Let's not let you struggle anymore. Let's hand you the positives, the finest sunny moments. And I know that you have a couple that you wanted to share with us. Well, he's 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 a unique goal scorer. I mean, they're not all the same types of goals. I mean, the the Pushkas winning Burnley one was unbelievable to watch that you know unfold in in real time. The Arsenal uh, curler into the Leno's top right corner last season was was underrated, I think. Um, one of the greatest North London derby goals for a long time. The West Ham thirty-yard uh, rocket against at Wembley. I mean, he he does them all, and yeah, the, it's, it's the variety and the freshness of his play. I think that that strikes me. Finest sunny moments. Yes, yeah, so a couple of hipster choices because Awesome's um, mentioned there. The you know, I guess the obvious ones, but the goal he scored against Watford on or between Christmas and New Year's back in his first season in the in stoppage time, where he flicked the ball through Gomez's legs whilst being fully airborne himself in the in the last minute. There's also a goal he scored at home to Swansea. He won five nil and he hit this acrobatic volley from an angle from about the edge of the penalty area as well. And as you know, as Awesome said, it's just a range of goals. He does also score the, the predatory six yard. T- Happens as well, which you need him, particularly when we don't have another centre forward. You need someone who's going to contribute that sort of goal as well. And I, I will add, uh, for me, I'm going to make this very personal. I mean, of all the great sunny moments, and there have been several, including that Chelsea goal at Wembley, which was great. I thought the goal at Man City in the quarter final to put us 2 1 up when he's just turned and, and, and just bent a rocket into the top right hand corner. I can tell you that sent me sprinting out of the hostelry in which I was watching that game, punching there and screaming like no other goal. I mean, it was, well, maybe one other. And I'm sure you can guess what goal that was. <laughs> it was just magnificent. And that game actually, to me, totally uh, encapsulates Song Young-min's importance and, and presence to us. A night where we were expected to 
you know, capitulate and fold. And he led the charge and he led it from the early doors to vitally important goals and leading the line. I mean, he was, you know, well, actually not quite leading the line, it's fair to say, because, of course, Lorente was part of that side, but certainly taking the responsibility on as being the talismanic forward for the side. And um, I think that's going to be my final question. Do we think that he is the player who can, uh, quote unquote, replace Harry Kane as that talismanic striker? Or is he just always going to be Sun Young-min, his own, you know, he's going to be who he is? I think it's going to be who who he is. So he's got 109 goals for us at the moment. He's one behind Glenn Hoddle. You'd imagine by the end of the season, he'll get another 15 and probably go ahead of Teddy. And then he'll have Alan Gilzean, Len Dukelman in his, his sights. Um, but, so he's going to go into that top five, top six all-time club goal scorers of all time. But what really stands him out is, well, maybe with the exception of Cliff Jones's, he's not a number nine, is he? He's not a centre forward. He's not, you, you know, your focal point of your attack that you expect to score the goals. So he's creating created that unique spot for himself in the pantheon of, of great Tottenham attackers. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's right that he's, he's not that, but a lot of clubs play without uh, a target man or without an out-and-out number nine now. So I think he's, a, he's a, a, you know, a very modern forward. And, you know, you could quite easily see him sitting, you know, fitting into uh, any of the top clubs in Europe uh, because of that. So he's not a direct replacement for Kane. I think if, if he's in the side, we play differently. Um, but I also think it's it's noticeable that um, even when we have had reserve strikers, quite often Sun has been preferred to them when Kane's been out. I don't think it's a new question here. I think he, he is Kane's understudy. He is Kane's replacement when he's been out. And he is he has been that for several years now. Yeah, I'm just thinking that so the type of player he is, you said he's a sort of modern forward. If I was trying to try and pick the best Spurs eleven that I've ever seen, so I'm awesome and I are of similar vintage, I think. So you'd be putting him on a par with the likes of Bale, Ginola and Waddle. But actually if you look at the number of games that he's played, the number of goals have scored, I mean he's left them so far behind and you think what absolute greats Bale, Ginola and mm. Chris Waddle are. Yeah. And that brings to a close our uh Humble appreciation of the mighty Sung Young Min. Uh, thank you, Sonny, for being you. What none of you will know is this is my fifth attempt to get correct the following information, that our first Europa Conference group game is away at Rennes at 17.45 BST on Thursday, September the 16th. Uh, I had originally thought we were playing them in a stadium called Stade Rene FC, but then I was rightly corrected and told that it's actually that club's full title. Uh, they finished sixth in League One last season, or as it says, Legui won here. Um, see, I'm not the only one who makes errors. Uh, they are regular qualifiers. That was my error, actually. I should have spell checked that. <laughs> they are regular qualifiers for European football. All of the above. Yeah, they're a European side that, look, hey, <laughs> they, <laughs> they beat Arsenal 3 1 in the Europa League in 2018 19. So, you know. Thumbs up to that, but let's hope that's the most success they ever have against the North London club. Lads, help me. I'm stumbling, you can tell. Uh, how strong a side should we play, and does the loss to Palace change anything in our approach to this game? I'm going to go round the round the table. Gareth, you start. I think it's really important that we that we get a good result out here. I mean, a, a draw is a good result in the context of the group. Um, for wider context, you think we play Chelsea next week, then we play Wolves away in the League Cup, and then we play Arsenal. So if we were to get beat in, in, in Rennes on Thursday that could see a sequence of five consecutive defeats and you wonder what damage 
which they had to do at the start of the season. The team, well, we know the three players that are going to be missing will still be missing. I mean, I'd like to see Kane travel out there and get 60 minutes because I think he's in that stage of his cycle where he just needs a bit of game time to click him into, into full rhythm. So I don't think that'd be the worst thing in the world. You'd imagine Lloris will stay behind. Then maybe Hoiberg may only be on the bench. But you want to see a bit of a hybrid, really, of, of, of senior first-team players who want to try and right the wrongs of yesterday and a couple of younger players as well involved. Awesome. Yeah, I think fitness is going to dictate a large part of who we end up playing. Yeah, just hope to avoid a, a, a loss, really. Like I said, a draw, would be, a draw would be a good enough result for this one. Milo? So, like Gareth, I think the result yesterday means that we've got to play a stronger side than maybe we were planning to. Um, I think originally I was thinking about playing fringe players and and kids in away in the conference group stage but I don't think we can do that um now uh agree again with Gareth that Kane could probably do with some minutes just to go up to full fitness if Skip is carrying a knock as it looked like yesterday maybe he's the one sits out which probably means that Hoybier does need to play Jaffet will definitely play because he's sitting out um the game against Chelsea on Sunday I'd, I'd like to see Hill start um and then I think on top of that there's you know, if Ndombele is going to be successfully reintegrated into the side, this is a game that we need. Uh, it would be good to get him a run out in and see what he can do. Um, I think this competition gives our fringe players a real chance to stake a claim for a place in the in the in the first team, the league team. So you know that should start on Thursday. Uh, as you mentioned, yes, we do host Chelsea on Sunday tea time. Uh, I, look, I'm gonna go with. Uh, my man Roots Manoeuvre here I think that selection is going to be basically a witness to fitness I think it's (laughs) going to be a case of like who's up who can move who can't who's there I hope I'm wrong I hope we do have you know a complement of players available I suppose the biggest question is whether Lo Celso and Romero and Sanchez will be will be playing I'd like to just make that the question do we think they're going to be available for that game or not I think they'll be available yeah they're due back the day before but I, I wonder whether yeah, with Jeffett out and depending on how long Dyer's out, whether Romero and um, Sanchez are going to be the first choice you know, centre-backs for the next few weeks, um, in which case we need to be working on them. I half-jokingly said before we came on air, before we started recording, that we could do worse than send uh, Reggie and uh, and Royal out to Croatia with a coach to work with the, the four of them in training this week and then play Doherty and um, and Davis on uh, on Thursday night. But actually, I think actually that's not not such a stupid idea, actually. And uh, it, yeah, maybe we ought to be considering that. It's a huge ask of uh, Romero to put him in with Lukaku in the form that he's in. And yeah, I I fear for I fear for our centre backs to be honest, based on how how informed he is. Well, he, you did play against him last season. True, true. Yeah, we talk about aggression at centre back, crikey, that would be uh, that's going to be some duel. I hope we get the chance to see it. I hope that he does play. I hope that Nuno gets the chance to select from something close to a full squad again. Uh, thanks very much, chaps. Much appreciated. Cheers, Steph. Cheers, Steph. Cheers, Steph. Enjoyed that. Thanks very much, chaps. Yeah, I just want to also make a public confession. I. Steph, do solemnly admit that I was wrong last weekend and Milo was right. It is Emerson Royale with an E, even though his name is not spelt with an E. I humbly apologise for questioning the linguistic genius that is Milo, and I take my punishment like like an adult. (laughs) So that's my confession. Thanks very much, everyone. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, so give us a follow and say hello. If you like what you hear, have a dig through our archives. There's loads of wonderful stuff to delight your ears. And if you've listened this far, you must really like this pod. So get on your devices and give us a review. 
Tell your friends on Twitter, tell your friends on Facebook, Instagram, just help us grow further. As always, thank you, and we'll see you next week.